so good to be back with you guys today in sunny Florida. I don't, didn't know you guys ever got rain. Apparently, you're excited to have it, though. So uh, glad to be back with you. Good to be here. And uh, if, you're, if it's your first time here at Mariano or Wakulla or Chipley, Bluntstown, Fairhope, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we realize it's not easy walking into a church you've never been in before, and for you to give an hour of your weekend to us, we really do appreciate it. And we hope today you feel comfortable and at home. Most of all, we hope you walk out of here with something helpful. You picked a great day to be here because we are in part two of a series called Bottom of the Knife. And this is something that whether you're a Christian or not, uh, we can all relate to. Uh, we know what it feels like to be in the middle of a bottom of the knife moment. A bottom of the knife is when you experience a setback that requires a seemingly impossible comeback. And the emotions are common to all of us. Our bottom of the knife look different, but the emotions are the same. We all feel down and out. We all feel full of doubt. Uh, it's dark. It's difficult. It's hopeless at times. Uh, we can feel incredibly helpless. For some of you, you're there right now with infertility and the battle with infertility. And it's not just you can't have the family you always dreamt of having, but it's the stress and the pressure it's putting on your marriage and, and that relationship and everything that goes along with that. And it can feel pretty dark when you're in the middle of that, wondering, is, is this ever going to happen or is this dream going to be dead? For some of you, it's a marriage relationship. And you feel like this is headed for divorce. You don't see any way it's not going to end up in divorce. Or maybe the two of you are... Uh, in a committed marriage, and by that I just mean you have decided, oh, we're not going to get a divorce, uh, but you really don't want to be in a marriage where each of you are committed to each other. Now, that sounds odd, but if you're committed to each other, it means you're forcing yourself to stay with that person. You, know, you want to be in a marriage where you love each other, not where you're, well, we're just committed to each other. So you, you may be in one of those relationships where you're like, well, we're going to ride it out, but this is never going to be the relationship, the marriage that I always want to have and always dreamt I would have. And that can be very, very difficult. That, that, those are bottom-of-the-knife moments that can often feel so, so helpless because you tried everything you know to try. You, you, know, you do everything you know to do. You listen to what the pastor says at church about having a good marriage and read the books and nothing seems to work and you don't know where else to turn. For some of you, it's because you're in a situation where either with your own health or the health of someone you love, you're, you're battling some things that you just feel like you're down to your last strike. And you're not sure it's ever going to get better. Matter of fact, you're not sure if you're going to make it through it or they're going to make it through it. It can be really, really difficult. It can put so much stress and it can, it can create so much frustration and so much disappointment when you're in the middle of those moments. And so much fear that comes along with that. For some of you, it's, uh, your bottom of the knife is a financial thing. And you're trying to figure out how to relieve all the pressure and all the stress and it just keeps mounting up, and you got this, maybe this credit card debt, and you keep saying, well, next month, well, next month, well, next month, you know how that works. You know, next month, we're going to pay down on the debt. Next month, we won't put more on it. Next month, we'll have more margin, and next month comes, and it doesn't happen in the next month, and it just feels like the never-ending cycle, and it's gotten to the point where you feel like, okay, I'm not sure we're ever going to turn this around. I'm not, I'm not sure how we can dig our way out of the hole that we are in. For some of you, your bottom of the knife is a spiritual thing. You are down to your last strike, it feels like, when it comes to God. Because of everything you're going through, because of all the circumstances you're having to navigate, you have reached a point where you've gotten so low, and I get this, you've gotten so low, it's gotten so difficult, that you've begun to wonder if people care, you've begun to wonder if the church cares, you've begun to question whether God cares, and whether he's really there. Maybe it's because of depression and anxiety and mental illness that you're having to battle. Maybe it's because of circumstances with a son or a daughter and, you know, the family and things just don't seem like they're ever going to be the way you wanted your family to be. I don't know what that looks like for you. I just know for all of us, when you find yourself in a bottom of the knife moment, 
It is difficult. It is hard. You feel down and out, and you are certainly full of doubt. We all are. And the thing we said last week as we started the series is simply this. The truth of the matter is you may be down, but you're never out. And I don't mean you're never out in the sense of, oh, you're not going to lose because you might lose. As a matter of fact, listen, if you don't do, hear anything else I say, hear this. This is going to seem strange, but hear this. You've got to be here next week because, one, Pastor Paul's going to be back, so you'll have an upgrading speaker. But beyond that, you've got to be here next week to hear the message that he's going to deliver because he's going to talk about what you do when you're in the bottom of the knife and you lose. For some of you, this is your story, isn't it? You prayed and prayed and prayed and you tried and tried and tried and you still ended up with a divorce or you still ended up losing that child or you, you, know, you still ended up losing the job, whatever the thing was for you. You still ended up in bankruptcy. Next week, Paul's going to talk about that. What do you do in the middle of a loss? How do you respond to a loss? If you said to me, out of all the messages in this series, what's the one, Matt, that I should most listen to? It wouldn't be mine. It would actually be next week. It's, it's going to be that helpful for so many of you. So I'm not saying that, hey, you're never out in the sense of this is like a pep talk. Oh, don't worry. You can come back from whatever you're facing, and God's going to do a miracle. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying that, oh, you're never out, and you're not going to have doubt, and it's not going to bother you. No, no, no. We, as we talked about last week, you're going to be full of doubt in the middle of a bottom of the ninth moment. But that doubt is not necessarily a bad thing. That doubt doesn't have to take you out. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is actually moving ahead in spite of your doubt. It's, it's seeing the doubt and acknowledging that the doubt is there and then figuring out how am I going to continue to follow and trust God anyway. As a matter of fact, I gave you a prayer last week. If you were here last week, you may remember this. Hopefully you spent the week praying this prayer if you're in a bottom of the knife situation. It was a prayer of a father who came to Jesus with a son who had a health issue and he was in a bottom of the knife moment. Jesus was really his last ditch effort to help his son and he looks at Jesus, and here's what he said. Do you remember this? He said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. To which we all go, well, which is it? And the dad would say, well, it's both. And this is so honest. This is why I love this prayer. This would be a great prayer for some of you to pray. Okay, Lord, I believe. I believe. In other words, I'm choosing to trust you, even though it doesn't make sense in this moment. Would you please, though, help my unbelief? Because I have so many doubts, and it feels like they're about to take me out. And I think God loves to answer this prayer. I think when you do this, God leans in a little bit and says, oh my goodness, look at that kind of faith, full of doubt, and they're still trusting me. And he steps in and oftentimes will bring deliverance out of dead ends, or he takes those setbacks that we experience and he uses them as setups to do something special in your life, even the losses that you experience. Now, all of that being said, if you find yourself in the middle of a bottom of the knife, you've got to do more than just pray. I mean, this, this is a good starting point. You've got to do more than pray, though. There's some things you actually have to do. There's some things that God wants you to do in order to cooperate with him and what he's trying to do in your life. Specifically, there are two things we're going to talk about today, and we're going to learn what these two things are from a couple that lived thousands and thousands of years ago. They're such a fascinating couple to me. Whether you're a church person or not, you probably have heard of them. You've at least heard of him because he's central in a lot of religions in the world. Most people in the world know his name. We're going to learn this from a couple named Abraham and Sarah. Now, what's interesting to me about their story is up until Abraham was in his 70s, if his life had ended right then, none of us would have heard of him because Abraham and Sarah had lived a very normal, what you might call unremarkable life up to that point. They lived in this little Middle Eastern town called Haran. And it wasn't until Abraham was in his 70s that he has an encounter with God, maybe his very first encounter with God. 
And God says to him, Abraham, I've got a plan for your life. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to up and leave your hometown. And I want you to move to a place that I have for you. But here's the catch. I'm not going to tell you where I'm taking you. You're just going to have to trust me, and I'll tell you when you get there. Now, for some of you, you're wired in such a way, that sounds like the most exciting adventure possible. You'd be like, oh, fun, fun. Uh, not me. Not me. I would prefer to have everything mapped out, to know the timeline of how long it's going to take to get there. And if you could go ahead, God, and give me a spreadsheet with a budget on what it's going to cost, that'd be perfect. I don't know if Abraham was like that, but I'm guessing he was. Because as God begins to talk to him about this, God ends up giving Abraham three promises. And I'm wondering if he didn't give them to him as a sweetener to try to you know, entice him to take the deal and to move. God looks at Abraham and he says, okay, First of all, if you'll do this, I'm going to make your name great. In other words, you're going to be famous. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. When you're famous, you don't have to wait in line to get a table at restaurants. I mean, when you're Pastor Paul famous, you can go anywhere you want and do anything you want in any community. Just kidding, Paul. So that wasn't so bad. I'm sure that got his attention. Secondly, God says to him, hey, not only will I make your name famous. Now, this sounds really huge, but all the nations in the world are going to be blessed through you, Abraham. Abraham didn't even know how that could happen. He's like, okay. And then there was this third promise. And the third promise was this. He said, Abraham, you're going to become the father of a great nation if you'll just trust me and move. Now, this third promise hit a tender point in Abraham and Sarah's heart. Because at the advanced age they were at, they had no children. They'd battled infertility their entire lives, and the dream of having a family was dead. Now, if you battle infertility or you've been through that season, you, you know how hard that is. So you multiply that by about 100 in their culture where the value of an individual, a person's legacy, the value of everything revolved around how big your family was, particularly in that culture, how many sons you had. And Sarah hadn't been able to give Abraham any children. Abraham and Sarah hadn't been able to start a family. You can imagine all the pain and the disappointment and the despair that they had gone through over the course of their lives. So when God looks at them and says, oh, by the way, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, that meant God was going to give them a son. And that had to get their attention. And so Abraham and Sarah say, okay, we'll go. And they pick up. Now think about this. In that culture, which was you know, you, you had a hometown, you stay there forever. In that culture, they pick up and they leave their safety, their security, their extended family, everything they have, and they take off to follow a God that they've just met, to go to a place they don't even know. But they're going because he's promised, I'll give you a son. And no doubt they're anticipating this is going to happen fast because, good grief, Abraham's 70, so it's got to happen pretty fast. And weeks go by, and then months go by, and Sarah's not pregnant. And then years go by, and Sarah's not pregnant. If you know the story, you know over two decades pass, and Sarah's not pregnant. Now, here's what I find so encouraging about this story. Over that two-plus decades, when Abraham and Sarah continued to wait and wait and wait and wait, and God did nothing, it seemed, they did not have perfect faith throughout that journey. They didn't just keep trusting, saying, oh, well, God, I'm sure he's going to do it at some point, and just, you know, we're, we're just going to believe him, we're just going to believe him. No, they had plenty of moments where they were full of doubt. They had plenty of moments where they gave up. They had plenty of moments where doubt absolutely knocked them down. There's so many examples of this over the course of their journey, but a couple of them that I find most interesting, there was one point where Abraham and Sarah were living in the place God had told them, 
And then they decided, nope, we're just going to up and move to Egypt. God's not doing what he wants us to do. I'm not sure he's going to provide. We're going to head to Egypt. They go down to Egypt. Pharaoh happens to see Abraham's wife. Sarah apparently is a very beautiful woman. And Pharaoh decides, I want her as my wife. And so he goes to Abraham and he says, hey, who is that? Abraham knows what's going on. Is scared to death Pharaoh's going to kill him. And so looks back at Pharaoh and says, oh, that's my sister. You're welcome to have her. And Pharaoh takes Abraham's wife. Fortunately, before they get married, he finds out what's going on. He gives her back and kicks them out of the country. Can you imagine, guys, what that conversation was like on the backside? I'm guessing Abraham spent a lot of nights sleeping out under the stars before they got that reconciled. That couldn't have been pleasant at all. There was zero faith. Abraham didn't think God was going to provide or protect, for him in any, protect him in any way. It was just, no, it's my sister. Later on, they get so desperate. Think about this. They get so desperate that Sarah looks at Abraham and says, God's never going to give me a son for you. So I'll tell you what. Here's my servant, Hagar. You just go sleep with her and get her pregnant, and you can have a son through her. Now, ladies, let me ask you a question. How desperate? Do you know how desperate you would have to be to make that decision? I'll answer it for you. No, you don't. You've never been that desperate. You will never be that desperate, will you? I mean, they had some moments. You look at what they did, and we call Abraham now the father of faith. Are you kidding me? He, he was down and out and full of doubt so many times throughout the course of his journey. But here's what's remarkable about Abraham and Sarah. Every time doubt knocked them down, they would get back up. Every time doubt knocked them down, instead of giving up, they would look up and say, okay, God, we screwed up. We want to trust you again. And God, this, is, this ought to encourage some of you, it does me. And God never once looked at them and said, nope, you've blown it, I'm done with you. Every time he looked down and said, okay, let's keep going. He never left them, he never abandoned them through it all. And eventually, after more than two decades, in their old, old, old age, Abraham and Sarah have a son, Isaac, who then later has a son, who then has 12 sons, who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And a nation is born. Abraham eventually becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Now, you fast forward centuries and centuries and centuries from when Abraham and Sarah lived. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to Christians in the city of Rome. Now, you think you've experienced some bottom-of-the-knife moments. I feel like I've experienced some bottom-of-the-knife moments. If we were sitting down talking to Christians in Rome, they would laugh at our bottom-of-the-knife moments. They would say, oh, that's all you've got, because they were living right in the epicenter of the Roman Empire that hated the Christian movement. And guess who happened to be the emperor when Paul wrote this letter? A guy by the name of Nero, who would take Christians when he found them, and he would light them up and use them as torches in his garden while they burned to death. These people lived every single day in a bottom-of-the-knife moment where there was persecution, and quite honestly, for many of them, they knew they were going to lose their bottom-of-the-knife. They were going to lose their lives. Because while everyone else would say Caesar is Lord, these Christians refused to say it in honor of Nero. They, they said, no, only Jesus is Lord. We're not putting Nero on the same level as Jesus. And so Paul, he's never been to Rome at this point. But he's heard about these Christians, and he decides, I want to write them a letter, and I want to encourage them. Oh, my goodness, they're dealing with so much. The persecution is so hard. But they're, they're demonstrating such courage in the middle of all this. I want to write them a letter just to try to encourage them and help them as they face these bottom-of-the-knife moments. And he decides as he's writing this letter, when, he gets, when you get to Romans 4, you see he decides, oh, 
I'm going to reference the story of Abraham and Sarah because they teach us some incredible lessons about what to do when you're down and out and full of doubt. And so he does. But he knows, and you need to know this before we read this, he knows they're all familiar with the story already. So he doesn't go into all the details. He knows all these Roman Christians already know about Abraham and Sarah. So he just summarizes their story in a couple of sentences, and then he gives us some incredible, incredible advice on what to do when we find ourselves down and out and full of doubt. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, against all hope, Abraham and hope believed. Now, just real quickly before we move on. This sounds like Paul saying Abraham had blind faith. It's one of the things, if you're not a Christian, it's one of the things that drives you crazy about Christians. Even if you are a Christian, you, you may go nuts when you see people do this. The blind faith that just closes their eyes, sticks their head in the sand, and says, oh, no, 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 don't, don't tell me any facts. I don't want to know about anything. I'm not going to deal with reality. I'm just trusting God, and I'm praying a prayer, and I'm saying I believe, and everything will work out. That is not what Paul said Abraham was doing. The Apostle Paul, you're going to see this in a minute. The Apostle Paul is going to explain to us that Abraham had the exact opposite of blind faith. But he knows they know the story. So he says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then he begins to explain to these Roman Christians, and he begins to explain to you and me, what we need to do when we face bottom of the ninth moments. Here's how he describes it. He says, without weakening in his faith, talking about Abraham. Now, let me just pause right here, because this sounds like Paul isn't telling the truth. I just told you and gave you some examples of how Abraham and Sarah basically lost all faith, how doubt absolutely knocked them down. How can the Apostle Paul write to these Roman Christians and act like, you know, Abraham and Sarah had perfect faith? Well, he's just summarizing an entire life. He knew they knew the story, so he didn't have to go into all the details. Here's what Paul's saying when he says, without weakening his faith. He's saying, Abraham, his faith started right here. By the end of his life, they had the benefit of hindsight. By the end of his life, his faith ended up here. But it wasn't a straight line up and to the right. If you had charted out Abraham and Sarah's faith, it would have looked more like a roller coaster. But in the end, they ended with a faith or a confidence, a hope, a trust in God that was stronger than when they started. Now, I find that incredibly encouraging because doesn't that sound a lot like your journey and mine? It is not up and to the right. It's a roller coaster a lot of times. But Paul says, you just need to look at the big picture and understand in the end, there's some things you can do to come out with a stronger faith than when you started. And he's going to explain to us what they are. Here's the first one. Without weakening his faith, he, Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And I love this. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. It's like Paul's dictating or writing this. And he says, listen, Abraham was so old, he might as well have been dead. And Sarah was, well, she just couldn't have a kid. Like, he wasn't going to call a woman old. He was smart enough to know better than that. Apparently, that, even in the first century, that was a bad idea. So he wasn't going there. But he says, okay, you got to understand something. This was not blind faith on Abraham's part. Abraham faced the fact that he was way too old and Sarah was way too old to have a child. They acknowledged and admitted the reality of their situation. They didn't try to duck it. They didn't try to hide from it. They didn't try to avoid it. See, when you're in the middle of a bottom of the night, the first thing you have to do is this. You have to confront the brutal facts. You do. Some of you, you shy away from this. 
As a matter of fact, you feel like if you confront the brutal facts, then you're not having enough faith. That's not true. The first step is always to confront the brutal facts. It's to acknowledge and admit, here's where I am. This is the situation. This is how desperate it is. This is how big this setback is. This is how, this is how nearly impossible a comeback will be in my situation. Practically speaking, this means if, if you're in the bottom of the knife financially, you ought to know exactly how much money you owe. You ought to know exactly what you're spending all your money on and where it's going. You ought to know exactly how big a hole you've dug for yourself. Don't just put your head in the sand and start praying expecting God to put a check in your mailbox. You need to know exactly what the brutal facts are. You need to confront them. Some of you don't want to confront them. Listen, I could pretty much guarantee you this. God's not going to do anything in your bottom of the knife until you first confront the brutal facts. Because if he did something, you wouldn't even know how big a thing he did because you don't know how big a hole you have. You don't know how big a deficit you're facing. For some of you, this means you've got to confront the brutal facts in your marriage and stop going along and playing like everything's okay when both of you know everything's not okay. But you're just trying to act like it's all good. But you're more roommates in the same house. You, you need to have a hard conversation and say, well, let's talk about the reality and the truth of what's going on and how bad this is and how, how strained this relationship has become. You may need help having that conversation, but you've got to have it. It may mean you confront the brutal fact that my son or my daughter, they may never come back and we may never experience the family dynamic that I always wanted to experience. You've got to acknowledge that's a possibility. You need to confront the brutal fact and acknowledge, you know what, we may never have a child. We're dealing with infertility, we may never have a child. And even if we never have a child, God's still good and he still deserves to be followed. So I'm going to acknowledge the reality of what could be and what very well may be. You have to confront the brutal fact that that person I love so much, they may never break free from addiction. That this depression, this anxiety I'm dealing with, I don't know if I'll ever work my way out of this. This may be something I deal with for the rest of my life. When you're in the bottom of the knife, you have to do what Abraham did. You have to face the truth. You have to confront the brutal facts. Some of you have a really hard time doing that. It's what you need to do this week. Others of you, you're probably a little more like me. Some of you are like me where you have no problem confronting the brutal facts. You have a problem moving beyond that. Abraham, this is where he started. This isn't where he ended. Look at what the Apostle Paul writes next. He says, yet Abraham did not waver. He looked at the facts. He saw how desperate and dire the situation was. Yet he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now notice this. Being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. See, once you confront the brutal facts, then the other thing you have to do is simply keep believing. Keep believing. Now, let me explain what I mean by this. By this, I do not mean just keep believing, oh, God's going to do something and work all of this out. Because God had given Abraham a promise he was going to have a son. He has not given you a promise that a check's coming in the mail. Here's what I mean by keep believing. You and I have to confront the brutal facts and then continue to hold on to the truth that no matter what happens in our bottom of the knife moment, 
whether we experience a comeback or a loss, that God has promised some things to us. He's promised to be with us. He's promised that he cares about us. He's promised that he loves you. And most of all, he's promised that he is with you. And he's going to remain with you and walk with you through whatever bottom of the ninth moment you face. Now, here's why I say that's so important. Because if you are confident that God is with you and will walk with you through whatever you're facing, then you can deal with whatever comes your way. As long as you know God cares, and as long as you know his strength is going to be there to help you, you can confront whatever the brutal facts are and keep moving. It's when you lose sight of who God is that you lose hope and you give up. See, here's the thing. If you're anything like me, when you find yourself in the bottom of the ninth, your focus, my focus, it's entirely on the outcome. You know what we want? We want a quick fix. God, would you just show up and fix this and then everything will be good? God's focus is actually not on the outcome. I'll tell you why. Because the outcome is no problem for him. He can do that anytime he wants. We're focused on a quick fix. God is focused on big faith. We're focused on the destination. Just get me there, God. Get me there, God. And he's going, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm more concerned about the journey. Let me tell you why. Because the thing that God values most in your life is not solving that problem of yours. That's easy for him. The thing that he values most in your life is a friendship with you. It's a relationship with you. And that has to be built over time. There is nothing that forges friendships between us and God any deeper and stronger than a bottom of the ninth moment. This is why Abraham and Sarah had to wait over two decades to have a son. Not because God couldn't have given them a son the first week after the promise. Because God had something much bigger in mind. Sure, he was going to give them a son, but before that, he wanted them to have a relationship. And he knew the only way that relationship would be forged is if Abraham and Sarah found themselves in a bottom of the knife moment where they continued to have to lean in and trust, lean in and trust, lean in and trust, and learn that they could depend on God. This is what God cares most about in your life too. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul addresses this coming out of the story, and if you never connected these dots, this may seem like a left turn for Paul, but this all made perfect sense to him. The Apostle Paul goes on, he writes this next. He says, this is why it was credited to him, talking about Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness. The fact that Abraham was willing to confront the brutal facts and keep believing, get knocked down by doubt and get back up, get knocked down by doubt and not give up but look up. The Apostle Paul says, God credited that to Abraham is righteousness. You know what righteousness means? It means a right standing with God. Do you know Abraham is referred to in Scripture? Think about this. He's referred to as a friend of God. That's what God was most concerned about in Abraham and Sarah's life. We'll get to the son. But what you need more than a son is a friendship. And I would say to you, as difficult and dark and painful as your bottom of the knife situation may be, what you need more than a quick fix is a friendship with your Heavenly Father. 
where you are confident no matter what happens in your life, no matter what you go through, no matter what you face. He is with you. And the Apostle Paul says, the same friendship that God offered Abraham and Sarah is available to us. He says, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. And the words that was credited to him were not written for him alone. Look at this. But also for us, for you, for me, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then he's talking about Jesus, and he says, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is just Paul's way of saying the whole reason that Jesus showed up on this earth, the whole reason he died and rose again, was to offer forgiveness and a friendship to you. That's it. That's it. Jesus came and died, not just so you could have eternal life and know, oh my goodness, I'm going to heaven when I die, and I kind of check that off. That's very transactional. It's very transactional. If you think the whole point of having a relationship with God is just to check off, well, okay, I know where I'm going to go when I die, then you're missing the whole point. It's not transactional, it's relational. The whole reason Jesus died and rose again was so you could know, yeah, forgiveness is being offered to you, but a friendship is available, and your Heavenly Father is inviting you to call Him Heavenly Father. You can be a son or a daughter of His. Now, the reason that matters so much is because once you have that kind of friendship and once you know you're loved that much by your heavenly father, then you never doubt where he is in the middle of a bottom of the knife moment because he is where any perfect father would be. He's right there with you. And he's going to be with you through it all. So here's the question I would ask. If you're in the middle of a bottom of the knife, here's another way to think about what you need to do with this, what it looks like to confront the brutal facts and keep believing. Maybe you should ask yourself this question. What would I do if I was confident God was with me? What would I do if I was confident God was with me? What would you do in the middle of your current situation? What would you do in your marriage situation if you were confident that God was with you? What would you do tomorrow? How would you act differently? What kind of conversations would you have? If you were absolutely certain, my Heavenly Father's with me, He loves me, He's going to walk with me through wherever this goes and however it ends up, win or lose. What would you do differently financially if you were confident God was with you? As you're walking through depression or anxiety, what would you wake up tomorrow and do if you had no doubt that your Heavenly Father loved you and cared about you, that He felt your pain? And he was willing to guide you and strengthen you through everything you're going through. What would you do if you're on the verge of walking away from faith? If you became confident, wait a minute, God really is for me. And he's with me. What would you start doing? For some of you, this is what you need to do this week. You need to act as if you're confident God is with you and you need to start doing the thing you know you should do and you just hadn't wanted to do because you didn't think it would make a difference. For some of you, you need to stop doing some things. There have been some dreams you've refused to let go of. They're dead, but you've refused to let go of them because you can't imagine a life without that being better. 
But if you were confident your heavenly father was with you and he loved you, you'd let go of some of those dreams. You would. You'd move on. You'd be confident. Whatever God's got for me, it's, it's going to be a great life. I don't have to hold on to this anymore. For some of you, you would keep doing some things that you just want to quit doing because it seems like it's making no difference. What does it look like for you to confront the brutal facts to keep believing? For some of you, this idea of having a friendship with your Heavenly Father is a brand new concept to you. If you were to describe how you think about God, you would never use the term friend. But that is exactly why Jesus came and died and rose again. It's not transactional. It's not, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to get saved and get baptized and then everything's good. That's a transactional way to look at it. No, it's about developing a friendship. And that's what your heavenly father wants with you more than anything else. And I'm telling you, that's what you need more than anything else in bottom of the ninth moments. So what would it look like for you to start viewing your heavenly father as your friend? No matter what your circumstances may be saying to you. Some of you have never reached a point where you've even trusted him enough to accept the forgiveness he offers you. Maybe for you, that's your first step is to confront the fact that, oh my goodness, I've, I've got a broken relationship with God. I need his forgiveness more than anything else. And I've just ignored what Jesus did for me and this gift he's offering. Maybe for you today, that's your step. I don't know what it looks like. I just know this. When you're in the middle of the bottom of the knife, there's only one way to keep doubt from taking you out. You've got to confront the brutal facts. You've got to keep believing. You've got to act as if you're confident your Heavenly Father is with you because I'm telling you, whether you can feel it or not, He is. And so you need to get out of the dugout, step up to the plate, take another swing, and keep moving ahead in spite of your doubts. Because you have a Father in heaven who's wanting to move right along with you. Let me pray for us. Father, for those who are in the middle of painful, difficult, disappointing, dark situations right now, for those who just want to lean into, oh, I'm just going to let God fix this, and they don't confront the brutal facts, would you give them the courage to actually this week confront the facts of where they are? Be honest about the situation. For those who are, tend to confront the facts and then just lose all hope and stop believing and assume that you're not there anymore, God, would you give them the courage to keep believing? Would you help us to have some clarity and some wisdom around what we would do if we were confident in the middle of our bottom of the night that you were with us? Then give us the strength to go do it this week. For those who've never entered into a relationship with you, for those who've never accepted your forgiveness that was offered through Jesus' death and resurrection, God, my prayer would just be in this moment as, as simply as they know how. That in their hearts, in their minds, they would just tell you, Jesus, I give you my life. I accept your forgiveness. I want to be your friend, and I choose to follow you. There, because there is nothing 
There's nothing that's any more valuable than to know in the middle of every life circumstance that our Father, our friend, our God is with us. So don't let us lose sight of that this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.